When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of The Next Big Trade. If Real Vision posts this on YouTube, there will be comments in the question section that says, what a despicably human being. He's profiting on Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. (laughs) From a contrarian's point of view, oddly, that's music to my ears. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. Enjoy the show. This week, we are joined by Rick Rule, President and CEO of Rule Investment Media, LLC, and the Chair of Equinox Gold. Uh, Rick's been a professional investor and speculator in natural resources and gold for 45 years, and he's financed numerous natural resource companies over those 45 years. So, Rick, thank you so much for coming on. Um, It's a real pleasure. It's a pleasure to be back with Real Vision. Thank you for having me back. Uh, How's it going? How's, How's your day treating you? You know, life is great. Uh, as you can see, Harry, I failed retirement miserably. I tried retirement. It lasted about five days. I was very, very unhappy. So I failed it completely. This is my retirement garb, shirt and tie. Yeah. Uh, and I'm back enjoying myself immensely. I failed to reach retirement. I think it's one of those things you're meant to aspire to. So I'd like to get to that place. And then I'd like to say no, thank you. But it's, it's like knighthoods in the UK or something. It's great to be offered them, whether or not right. you're going to take them. So... A question I usually ask, which usually goes badly wrong as well, is before we go into your main investment thesis, could I ask what's on your mind these days? Uh, Anything that is not the investment thesis, what's got your attention right now? Well, maybe a different investment thesis. Uh, I'm starting a new bank. I'm a serial entrepreneur. And when I see holes in the market, I can't help but try to fill them. Uh, This experiment goes back to a couple things. One, I'm a fairly large customer of three very large banks in the United States, and I would describe my relationship with these banks as sullen but not quite mutinous. And that's not the relationship that you want with a service provider. It also goes back to helping found another bank about 20 years ago, Everbank, uh, with my friend Frank Trotter. It was one of the first online banks, and we had a wide range of customer-friendly products, foreign currency CDs, index CDs, precious metals index CDs. They grew the bank from uh, a standing start to $28 billion in AUM before they sold it to um, TIA-CREF. And so those two things, the fact that there are enormous holes, product holes, both in the lending side and the deposit side in American banking – Uh, And I have a team with whom I've done it before has meant that uh, I'm celebrating retirement at age 69 by starting a new bank. And I'm really, really excited about it. So one of the great joys of of serial entrepreneurship is you've done this before. 
let's let's be a little bit more specific about this. I'm I'm curious. I've got a terrible relationship with my not a terrible. I, I have a, a a feudal relationship with my banks. They do what they want to me, and I occasionally apologise for not being as good a customer as I could be. What holes do you see in U.S. banking at the moment? Well, for one, I'm fairly financially sophisticated. And the variety of products offered up by the banks, uh, which mostly seem designed to hoodwink me, are such that even a person like myself with 49 years in finance uh, has difficulty understanding them. I'm also of an age where when I phone an institution that I'm either borrowing a lot of money from or lending a lot of money to, I like to talk to a human. In our prior bank, uh, we had a policy, uh, all phone calls answered within five rings. I think that deposit products ought to fill customer needs. So at our last bank, like in this one, you'll be able to get a certificate of deposit in many different currencies. You'll be able to open a, a checking account and a banking account in many different currencies. So if you're a Canadian business person wanting to do business in the U.S., or a U.S. business person who imports and exports from Canada, as an example, you'll be able to open up a Canadian dollar bank account with our bank. It seems simple, <laughs> but try doing it with one of the large Canadian banks. As an American, it would seem to be impossible. I've also noticed huge holes in lending. I've been in the precious metals business all my life, and there are no U.S. chartered banks that I know of that like to lend money against precious metals, against bullion, gold and silver held in storage. The idea that somebody wouldn't want to lend against good collateral <laughs> where they control the collateral seems absolutely laughable to me. Uh, similarly, now the big thinkers uh, in the oil and gas business, the people that have dominated oil and gas lending, are leaving the space. It's a wonderful business. And as long as people continue to drive, the fact that uh, maybe Biden doesn't like it and Angela Merkel doesn't like it and Trudeau doesn't like it doesn't matter. When most people go to their garage and turn the key to the right, they want the car to start. So it's going to be a pretty good business. This is really banking, a game of blocking and tackling. I know for sure that the big banks, I can't compete with them, but they can't compete with me either. <laughs> and so I'm looking forward to doing battle. Hence the name of the bank, Battle Bank. That's that's fantastic. So look, I'm a British citizen, but I live in the United States. Um, that gives me a, and that's both a unique perspective, but it gives me a specific perspective on uh, problems with banking. And what I, I've got to tell you, the environment was, I think it was deliberately made less friendly for people who want to do big international transfers because they're sick of tax evasion. Um, and possibly because they want to extract more tax in the future. So you need to lock that regime down to make it harder to do it. But the whole FATCA thing can make, you know, makes life pretty miserable if you're trying to move money around the world. Luckily, uh, my career as an international drug kingpin never really took off. Um, although it did look a very high margin business. But regardless, um, it just throwing money around, moving money from the UK to the US and the US back to the UK, it's expensive. It's stupidly expensive. You get terrible service and you have a lot of paperwork to do. So good luck to you. Um, I suspect you'll find out things about what the authorities intend for banks that you didn't expect. I have to tell you this, Harry. I've now had interviews with the Fed, 
with the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, with the FDIC, and while I have problems with the mandate of all three of those agencies, I like the people. <laughs> I found them smart. I found them helpful. Uh, this was not my intention, by the way. You know, I, I looked forward to a, a three-agency discussion the same way you might look forward to Root Canal. And I actually came away very pleased with the people, if not with the mandate. Well, exactly. And, you know, I don't like to out myself, but a long time ago, before I was thrown out of the brownies, I used to be a Bank of England employee. They gave us really nice checkbooks. We got the best checkbooks. <laughs> like Bank of England, it's fantastic. But yeah, I can't, all of us were all fairly well briefed and we knew, our, knew what we meant to know and unfailingly polite, except for me. What can I say? I think central bankers are good people, but sometimes the good people are asked to do tough things. So it, it just is what it is. I, you know, I'm puzzled about the investment environment at the moment. Um, how are you looking at things? Are equities cheap? Are bonds cheap? Neither? Both? I mean, what do you think of the, the overall investment environment? I think equities are probably reasonably priced if you don't believe that there's a recession coming down the pike. One of my problems in life is that I've always been optimistic about my own business, but I've always been afraid of the world. So I've accurately forecast approximately 17 of the last three recessions. And I've stopped listening to myself. What I really look for now is value in areas where I have specific expertise, which is to say where I think my ability to analyze is better than my competitors, or areas that are demonstrably specifically cheap. I think that microcap equities, uh, cash flow positive microcap equities, I'm not talking about the penny dreadfuls, but I think uh, companies with market capitalizations less than a billion dollars or hopefully less than $350 million are woefully undervalued. They aren't being bought by the ETFs. They aren't generating commissions. And the dichotomy in value, albeit at higher risks, between the microcap stocks and the big stocks is striking. It wasn't so two or three years ago. Two or three years ago, the large cap stocks ex-tech were reasonably well priced given the risk reward juxtaposition. But the bottom's fallen out of the microcap market and all of the liquidity, all of the volume, all of the research, all of the ETF stuff is in the large caps. I'm concerned about bonds too because I'm concerned that someday the market might regain control of interest rates and uh, the bond market would be an absolute mess if you had a real yield. If yields return to the 40-year mean, which is to say real yields return to the 40-year mean, there'd be an absolute catastrophe in bonds. I'm particularly concerned about the junk market, which is one of the places I came from, the junk bond market. So many high-yield issues are controlled in the ETFs. And while the ETFs are highly liquid, the underlying components of the ETF aren't. And if you ever began to have disintermediation out of the ETFs uh, and the ETFs were forced to sell these illiquid instruments that they own, I think it would be a total mess. You may remember, Harry, uh, references in the 1980 to owl bonds. An owl bond was an illiquid issue when you called your broker up to sell and your broker said, to who? To who? <laughs> and I, I'm terrified uh, I mean, really, truly terrified that we're going to see a circumstance in the credit market where there's a flight to quality and there's no bid. There's nobody to sell to. I hope I'm wrong. So 
I'm not quite old enough to remember the Albons, but I know what you mean, because I kind of started, I was at the Central Bank in the late 80s. But yeah, Eurobond flows have waxed and waned, and mostly waned over the last 20 years. Now that liquidity, it's only primary. There's no real secondary liquidity. Um, if the uh, investment management firms would like to trade bonds, they have to trade with other investment management firms. This is a probable catastrophe. And, you know, in the making, I'd say the Fed is fully aware of this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have set up that facility when COVID struck to soak up liquidity from asset management firms that wanted to trade corporate bonds. So any, if you had a corporate bond, you could go to the Fed and they'd pay you a price that they deemed uh, appropriate. God knows how they would know, but there you go. I suppose the whole point is the price was not appropriate. That's why they were paying you. Otherwise, you know, you'd have found a price in the market. But yeah, I can see a potential problem down the line if the authorities are foolish enough to allow it to happen. I can also see uh, that question mark. You know, I was struck by you saying if real yields went positive again, they're just about going positive now, um, or rather linker are selling off fast enough that real yields are going positive uh, relative to very low break-evens. And uh, I don't know, what is the natural natural situation? Are we meant to get paid a positive real interest rate? Why do we think that is natural? I'm not sure. You know, what you do as a saver is you defer consumption in favor of somebody for whom the consumption is of more value than the interest the idea that you should lend to me uh, and you should forego consumption now in my favor uh, and you should be paid back an amount that allows you to consume less than you could have consumed when you lent to me while at the same time taking a credit risk. In other words, the idea that you should be punished for taking a credit risk seems somehow unnatural to me sure, uh, sure. as a depositor. The I mean, the the value proposition offered up by the U.S. 10-year treasury, you know, the deepest, most liquid market in the world, basically is that these guys promise to pay you, what, three and a half in a currency where the purchasing power is deteriorating by about 9% compounded. Our mutual friend Jim Grant refers to that as return-free risk. I don't think that return-free risk is a natural part of the financial structure. I think it's a construct of 40 years of benign climate and the politicization of finance. At any rate, I'm on strike. Uh, I'm not buying any return-free risk. It seems like absolutely no fun to me. You have withheld your consent. I see. So I spent a long time puzzling over this question. I came up with an answer. It's probably a bad answer because lots of my answers are bad. My wife tells me frequently. Other people do too. But my answer is as follows. Um, over in China, there are currently uh, four grandparents on average for every grandchild. Um, this demographic nightmare of spoiled grandchildren um, is coming to a, to a country near you. It, it's coming everywhere. And what that really means is we've got a problem obtaining and locking in future consumption. And by, by the way, for anyone listening to this nonsense that I'm talking now, this is entirely my you know, my my theory. Nobody serious actually gives it much credence, but it's it's my way of explaining what what I observe. So we now have a problem. Not in the past, the problem was always getting hold of current consumption. There was lots of people who promise you future consumption, but very few people who would promise you current consumption. So you often offered people terms, you paid them a premium on their current consumption to persuade them to defer. 
These days, my problem as a 56-year-old is how I can lock in the best forward con consumption I could. Um, I don't really have a problem right now. I've got everything I need. I, I could get more extreme needs. I could my wife might my wife might develop a love of boats or, or second homes or something. But right here now, my bigger problem is how to lock up the standard of living I'd like to become accustomed to in ten years' time. And I don't have many choices. And if the demographic problem that China has is replicated in other countries. It might turn out that actually getting hold of that future consumption could be on even worse terms than I'm currently facing. So, you know, that's how I explain the inexplicable, but, you know, for what little it's worth. Well, we'll talk a lot about demographics in the next part of this interview because it's, a, it's an important part of the uranium thesis. And I look forward to that visit. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, let's let's get going. This is what we're all about. So, so Rick, tell us about the next big trade. What should we be invested in? Well, I, I confine myself to natural resources and conventional financial services. As I told you earlier in this interview, I've made mistakes in lots of sectors and I'd prefer not to make mistakes in the future. So I constrict myself to – or constrain myself, pardon me, to areas that I think I know better than my competitors, one of which is natural resources. And natural resources are a rather unique uh, investment area. They are capital intensive. They are deeply cyclical. And one of the things I've learned in my life is that to take advantage of that, you must be a contrarian or you will be a victim. Uh, there isn't very much middle ground. And so what you do is you look for sectors where the industry pricing has the industry in liquidation. That is oddly, you look for sectors in liquidation where the price, the selling price of the commodity is less than the median cost of production. You don't do this out of, you know, some sense of self-hate. You do it because if the commodity is necessary for the well-being, material well-being of humankind, either the price goes up or the commodity goes away. Uh, this has served me well for 40 years. <laughs> it took me 10 years to learn it and I was served poorly in those 10 years. So you look for something where the industry pricing st structure signifies that the industry is in liquidation and you look for a sector too if you can find it that in addition to the economics is out of favor politically. In the natural resource-based businesses, I could name lots of those. I could talk about coal if I wanted to, which is also not a bad trade. Uh, I could talk about oil and gas, which is what uh, I talked about in Real Vision two years ago. But what I want to talk about today is uranium. Uh, not only uh, is the industry in liquidation based on current pricing, but if you want to hear something that's hated, just look at uranium. If Real Vision posts this on YouTube, there will be comments in the question section that says, what a despicably human being. He's profiting on Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. <laughs> From a contrarian's point of view, oddly, that's music to my ears. Uh, I don't have much competition there. So let's go through the trade. Uh, the trade really involves the electrification of life in the first instance, the increasing amount of electric power, electric gadgets 
that you and I use. But more importantly, it also goes to the electrification, uh, the increase in material living standards of humankind. Many people don't realize that 1.2 billion people on Earth have no access to primary electricity. Another 2 billion people on Earth experience energy poverty, meaning intermittent or unaffordable uh, energy. The whole world wants to live like you and I, and mercifully, the last 30 years, we've done a great job of bringing them up, and you and I want to live better, and all of that takes power. People say, what about wind? I'm all for it. Sun, I'm all for that too. The problem is they're intermittent. You know, the sun doesn't always shine. Other than in the legislature, the wind doesn't always blow. We need baseload power, and that's where uranium comes in. It's the densest fuel known to humankind, and that's important too if you are in an area that experiences resource poverty, a place like Japan or Korea or Taiwan. One fairly small building in Japan could store enough uranium to power Japan Inc. for five or six years. They simply can't store that much liquefied natural gas or that much coal. So the first argument in favor of uranium is the simple electrification of the world and the increasing electrification of the part of the world that can easily afford to pay for it, not just electric cars, everything that we use. The second part of the uranium thesis is carbon. I'm not going to get myself into the global warming debate, but I'm also not going to bother debating with anybody that we ought to pump less crap into the air and pump less crap into the ocean. Uh, our method of living on Earth uh, needs to be as harmless as we can make it. Nuclear power generates no byproduct carbon. There's no suit. <laughs> uh, there's nothing like that. People point to radiation. The truth is there is one coal fly ash field in Ohio that generates more background radiation than every nuclear plant in the world combined. It's odd that when you talk about the pollutant byproducts from uranium, even in terms of radiation, they're fairly low <laughs> on the byproduct pollution scale. But it's the economics that really get me. Uh, I love a commodity where the price must go up and it can go up. If a price must go up and can go up, I submit to you that it will go up. So here's the arithmetic. On a global basis, the total cost to produce uranium, I'm not talking about just the mine cost, but the cost of capital, in particular social rents, taxes, royalties, fees, but also prior year write-downs, which is to say unsuccessful capital efforts and exploration. The total cost to uh, produce a pound of uranium is estimated about 60 US dollars a pound. Right now, the stuff is selling on the spot market for 50 US dollars a pound. So we make it for 60, we sell it for 50, we lose 10, and being miners, we try and make it up on volume. And we aren't doing a good job. The world is using about 200 million pounds, uh, and we're producing about 125 million pounds. So we are running down inventories at about 75 million pounds a year. But it gets worse. The incentive price for new uranium, which the world is going to need in two or three years, is more like $75 a pound because of inflation in the supply chain and increasing social rents. So merely to maintain current production takes 60. To bring on new production, remember that we're in a 75 million pound deficit, takes 75. And demand for uranium, despite the wishes of the big thinkers, is growing fairly rapidly. The price can go up, too, because the cost of nuclear fuel uh, 
relative to the total cost of generating electricity from a nuclear power plant is very low. Uh, they spend more on lawyers and lobbyists and certainly much, much, much more uh, on depreciation than they spend on power. If the price of the fuel input in a nuclear power plant were to double, on average, that would increase the cost associated with producing electricity by about three and a half percent. In other words, it's an irrelevancy uh, compared to things like interest rates, the cost of capital, taxes, and regulation. So I submit to you that the price must go up. It must go up because it's the most affordable form of baseload power in the world, even in countries like the United States that pretend that they can afford to be stupid about power. 20% of our baseload power is nuclear and 13% of our total consumption is nuclear. If the price doesn't go up to cover the cost of production in six or seven years, the alternative is that the lights will go out. If you're thinking about the thesis, think whether it's more probable that the price of uranium will go from $50 to $75 or the lights will go out because those are the only two alternatives. So I would submit to you that since the price must go up and the price can go up, uh, it will go up. But the thesis gets a little better than that, which is to say increasingly this has become evident to voters. And as a consequence of being evident to voters, it's evident to politicians. Three years ago, a public opinion poll was taken in Japan and a mere 21% of Japanese voters post Fukushima were in favor of uranium. Today, the number is 61%. The Kyoto Protocols are popular in Japan. Energy security is popular in Japan. And there is a new understanding that despite the sort of strange love fear that people have of uranium, uh, that uh, the risk of mortality from uranium, unless something goes really, really, really wrong, is really, really, really low. The co-founder of Greenpeace has come out in favor of nuclear power plants. The changing politics of nuclear power plants even has President Biden who had a campaign contribution, uh, campaign promise to get rid of it, now suggesting he's going to subsidize it. Uh, I, I need to be careful who I choose as my friends, of course, but I, I say that just to illustrate the changing political winds around uranium. The other, another thing that's happening is the spot market. The uranium business, the uranium spot market has been oversupplied since Fukushima, way oversupplied. And the price of uranium on the spot market fell from $85 to uh, $16 or $17 post-Fukushima. It's taken a long time to, to wade through that spot market overhang, but we've begun to do it, uh, aided, of course, by my former employer, Sprott Inc., launching the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which now has 55 million pounds of uranium in inventory taken off the spot market. Now, for the last 10 years, Utilities haven't bothered to do structured term contracts in uranium because it was cheaper to buy it in the spot market. But that game is over. When the price goes up and the price gets locked in by utilities to, for the five or six year time frame, the producer's future cash flows are both assured and visible. And there is nothing that the market likes to see as much as rising earnings that are both secure and visible. So, and I guess the final um, catalyst has been that a lot of the oversupply came from Japan post-Fukushima. And I've thought for three or four years that the biggest impetus in terms of near-term demand will be the pace of Japanese restarts. But I didn't know what year that would occur. Uh, 
It turns out that that year is 2022. <laughs> the Chinese are building nuclear power plants like mad, but they're going to affect demand five years from now, six years from now, seven years from now. Japanese restarts change demand right now, and we're having that happen. So my suggestion to you is that this is inevitable and imminent simultaneously. Two different words. The difference between those words have punished me from time to time in the past. But in this circumstance, it's a situation that has to happen and I believe will happen fairly quickly. By fairly quickly, I mean in the one to two year time frame. So there's a lot to process there. And, you know, my job is to push back. Great. Uh, I should disclose I actually own some uranium stocks, uh, almost definitely the wrong ones, but I do have uh, Cameco, for example, which is the one I bought without thinking too hard. That's the right one. Well, it just, you know, how wrong can you be buying a a big Canadian producer? That was what I was thinking. Minimizing wrongness, not maximizing rightness. Um, But... When I think about this problem, so you've touched on loads of the issues. One of the things I think about is I don't really see, you know, abstracting from Japan, you've just informed me, I didn't know the Japanese are starting to restarting power production. I don't see many new nuclear facilities starting. I see places where they had nuclear facilities and they're now thinking of, of not retiring them. Yes. Uh, when they had been planning to retire them. And that's got to be a positive, right? Absence of a negative has got to be a positive. Um, but you'd think the baseload argument would say, we've got to build new, new, more nuclear. More. Now, in the UK, there are plans to put these mini nuclear uh, plants into action. And they, they, they're attractive. They, they don't produce nuclear waste to the extent that the bigger plants do. And the, the accidents are likely to be smaller. Lots of small plants will give you a smaller, a, a larger number of small accidents rather than a bigger number of very big, you know, a, a small number of very big accidents. But um, am I wrong to think that we have yet to see that wholesale adoption? Uh, you've brought up a lot of points there. Let's try and deal with them in reverse order. The first is with regards to waste. If you lived your whole life uh, on electricity generated from nuclear, the waste would fit in the glass that you're drinking out of now. Uh, the most important thing about the waste is that we store it where we, where we can get it back because as technology improves, we're going to need that waste. But let's get back to your point. Uh, we don't see nuclear power plants getting built because we live in societies that have believed for 20 years that they don't need them. The Chinese, the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Indians – People in the UAE feel very differently. And there's an absolute rash of new plant construction. I don't mean plans. I don't mean permits. I mean construction. Construction, yeah. Particularly in China. But we've seen a circumstance now where even in Great Britain, your outgoing PM has said our answer is nuclear. And the conservative party is angling with the British public to spend about or cause to be spent 20 billion pounds sterling on large nuclear plants. The small plants, the SMRs that you talk about, will also make a difference. But they'll begin to make a difference in five or six or seven years. This is a technology that, while not in its infancy, uh, hasn't reached commercial proportions yet. What we are seeing in the West, rather, and you noted this, rather than new construction, has been the deferral of plant shutdowns. That is to say, plants that had been slated for shutdown uh, are now extended. In the case of Diablo Canyon in California, as an example, where nuclear is deeply unpopular, 
the shutdown was slated to happen in 2022, and now it looks like it's going to happen in 2042. Uh, <laughs> this is a circumstance where uh, that's going on uh, around the world, uh, led, of course, by China. But the whole world has come, has come to understand uh, that they're power deficient. The whole world, too, as a consequence, I think, of the uh, Russian-Ukrainian adventure has been that people have come to understand that the demand for energy security is worth something. We've seen in Europe the consequences of an energy policy revolving around solar where the sun doesn't shine. Uh, and access to third-party power, which is to say Russian gas, which doesn't work. Even the Germans now are talking about deferring uh, their three remaining plant closures. And the Germans, of course, are buying electricity from anybody they can, including the French, who generate it from nuclear. <laughs> so one of the things that comes to mind when I think about problems of nuclear is the thing that happened, engineering failures. Like Fukushima, um, which I probably pronounced completely wrong, uh, was a, a series of, of cascading failures. In particular, there was a tsunami. The tsunami overtopped a, a tidal wall, um, sorry, a, a seawall, and that flooded a power generation facility that was meant to drive the power to do the cooling. Um, the reason why we have less nuclear power being generated right now in Europe is because the same reason we have not very much hydro being generated. The rivers are running really dry, so the reliability of coolant is not available to them. And so they've had to shut down to reduce... Oh, I may, may have got that completely wrong because I'm, I'm guessing why, but I, I think the problem is a lack of water on certain nuclear plants. You know, isn't this a problem going forward? Why, why won't this happen again? This is why we stopped consuming a lot of uranium. Why couldn't we just have one more accident to, to throw a spanner in the works? It's interesting that uh, when we have a non-nuclear accident, it doesn't seem to inspire the same fear. As an example, Pacific Gas and Electric in uh, the Bay Area uh, had a natural gas pipeline blowout that roasted 82 people. Uh, but because everybody has natural gas in their homes, people are much less afraid of it. The truth is that the mortality rate and the sickness rate uh, around nuclear power relative to other forms of power is extraordinarily good, uh, but it isn't emotional. And yes, there was an, an engineering failure at Fukushima. It's worth noting that that engineering failure uh, resulted in very, very little radioactive sickness. Uh, about a, about a thousand people, pardon me, were killed in the general evacuation, and thus far, as I understand it, there have been about five deaths <laughs> attributable to nuclear power. Now, Chernobyl was a very different circumstance. Uh, there is a chilling quote, and I forget the guy's name, um, a senior Russian official who was of, uh, I forget the guy's name, so I'll just say the quote. He said, "We made the policy decision because they only had one." concrete shell around Chernobyl, that Ukrainians were cheaper than concrete. Uh, and the consequence of that was a deliberate underinvestment in capital equipment. Uh, that's something that you don't want to do with any power source, a thermal source or, or anything else. No large-scale industrial activity is riskless. 
But when you compare the narrative around nuclear power with the statistics around nuclear power, particularly if you throw on top of that the politics of carbon and the politics of energy poverty for three billion people on Earth, my suspicion is that the time has come for uranium. You know, I share your netting, your of the accounting of the pros and cons. I, I that's why I bought some. I didn't buy a life-altering amount of it, but it did very well. Sadly, I bought life-altering amounts of other things that didn't. That's often how the cookies crumble. So I'm, I'm, you're, you're pushing on an open door to some degree. The main thing I'm interested in is how how big I should size the trade, and what could go wrong. Because um, usually when I say what could go wrong, something goes wrong. I think three principal risks. One would be a plant accident. Uh, a plant accident would delay the trade 10 or 15 years. And on a net present value basis, being 10 or 15 years early isn't early. It's wrong. <laughs> the second would be a synchronized global recession or depression that reduce society's ability to build nuclear power plants and reduce their need for them too. The Japanese would have less need for restarts if the Japanese economy wasn't shipping export goods around the world. So a synchronized global recession or depression, I think, would, um, would depress the trade. I think the other thing that you need to be concerned about in all markets uh, would be rapidly rising interest rates. Rapidly rising interest rates would make new plant construction more expensive. They would raise the cost of equity too because the capitalized value of distribution streams would go down. Uh, and so I think those three things are the things that, that make me nervous. Uh, recession, depression, which I'm always afraid of. <laughs> A plant failure, which I'm less afraid of but would be catastrophic. Uh, and rapidly rising interest rates, which would increase the cost of capital and lower the capitalized value of the distributions from all industries. By the way, rapidly rising interest rates wouldn't help <laughs> or won't help if they occur uh, any of our portfolios. So the, I guess one could argue that uranium and nuclear power is particularly capital intensive, so it will hurt the, the efficacy, you know, the, the commercial viability of u nuclear even more than than the, the other major sources. I was, um, I was doing that which you could laughably call my homework, which is unusual for me. I was a terrible student in many ways. But I, I was watching a video of yours and you repeated a phrase that I've heard many places, which is the cure for high prices is high prices. Now, there's been a broad commodity rally in the last couple of years. It's, you know, like agriculturals tick the box, uh, energy tick the box, metals tick the box, everything's rallied. Do the fundamentals really justify those prices? Uh, are we about to buy the highs in commodities? I have fears around that, I have to say, uh, and I think it depends on the commodities. I believe that if saner heads begin to prevail in Russia and Ukraine, that pulses and grains can come down a lot. Uh, I believe, too, that agricultural minerals, which is to say ammonia uh, and potash in particular, could come down. What you see in the extractive industries, oil and gas and mining, has been that society has been underinvesting in the means of production around those societies for a very long time and continues to do it now. The International Ener Energy Agency uh, estimates that the oil and gas industry by itself is underinvesting in sustaining capital investments necessary to maintain production to the tune of about a billion dollars a day. 
a day, deferring new project investments, cutting back on exploration, but even cutting back on field maintenance. And when you do that, and you've seen the results of it in places like Venezuela and Mexico, you don't turn the money tap back on and have the well begin to produce again immediately. To turn around a field like Cantoral in Mexico would take billions and billions of dollars, which Mexico inconveniently doesn't have. And it would take three to five years to reestablish reservoir dynamics. The same with the Maracaibo Rev Reservoir in Venezuela. So I would argue with you that, again, absent a major recession or depression, that the mine, the extracted commod extractive commodities are going to do better than we think simply because we're coming to a supply cliff due to underinvestment. If we begin to invest now, this supply cliff won't, won't last. We'll fix it in a decade. It's getting from here to there that'll be a challenge. So quite often when I think about this, I it's very easy to get trapped in a Malthusian doom loop. It's like, it's it's because, yeah. you know, what would, I'm, I have a horrible suspicion, I've asked this question before, but what would resource depletion look like? And resource depletion is one thing, underinvestment is another. Yeah. Resource depletion is a function of price, really. We will find with natural gas high prices as high as they are, we have more gas than we ever dared believe we have. We even have more gas in northern Germany in those shale basins than the Germans would want to believe. These prices for natural gas, uh, I didn't think I'd live to see them. Uh, and at this price, uh, peak natural gas supply wouldn't happen for 200 or 250 years. <laughs> so, you know, when you talk about resource depletion, you really need to juxtapose price and cost of capital, cost of capital, including uh, social rents. The Malthusian argument is an argument against technology. Right now, as an example, in the mining industry, we can see about one angstrom into the earth which is to say that if an outcrop, if we can't literally trip over it in some circumstances, we don't find it. As the price of mineral commodities goes up and our ability to use things like deep penetrating radar uh, and satellite imagery to look at arid areas that are uh, unpopulated, we will find more resources, but we need to spend the money to look. Uh, the Malthusian argument is one that I don't think we need concern ourselves with uh, certainly in your children's lifetimes. The stronger form of that argument, uh, or, the, or perhaps a weaker form, I'm not sure which way around doing this, but the, the, would be not that it's we're going to run out of resources, but the cost of extracting those resources will go up faster than our ability, than the price or the viability of that. Um, and people in energy often speak about the energy return on energy extraction. Right. Um, which seems to me to be more intuitive way of looking at the same thing. If it costs you two barrels of oil to get one barrel of oil, probably isn't worth getting the barrel of oil. Um, how, how about in that form? Do you dismiss the argument in that form as well? Well, I, I probably argue it differently. First of all, what you're talking about, I guess, is the physical property of entropy. <laughs> and things like hydrogen right now uh, are net energy consumers. Uh, as are the so-called agricultural fuels, ethanol and things like that. They actually consume energy. They're politically expedient, but they don't conform too well with the laws of uh, physics. <laughs> um, it's important to note, though, that over the last thousand years, but also over the last hundred years, that the price of commodities has fallen 
uh, in real terms and in particular relative to other goods and services continually. I think we're going to come into a period of time, it might be 10 years long, 20 years long, where the price of resources reverts to mean. Uh, but I believe that as technology improves, uh, if politics improves, uh, if we're able, as an example, to look for minerals across the Tethian metallogenic belt, that part of the world that goes from Romania to Mongolia, we're going to find lots of stuff. We're just need to get out there and get it. It's going to take us 10 years or 20 years to get from here to there. And the 10 or 20 years that we get from here to there means I think that extractive materials will be a better investment theme than we believe, not as a consequence of Malthusian uh, excesses, but rather as a consequence of underinvestment in exploration, in technology, and in production. Yeah, it's not a resource depletion issue. It's just an underinvestment issue. And this could all have been fixed if we'd actually bothered to invest any money. And there were really good reasons why people didn't invest money in these areas. Uh, the main one being we weren't going to need dirty energy anymore. So why would you why would you put twenty years of money into something that would be phased out in ten? I read I read the other day that uh, you know a guy who owns a big porn channel got five hundred million dollars in dividends last year. There were obviously better places to invest. Well, exactly. In extractive industries. I, yeah. I just didn't have to have that opportunity availed to me. But uh, you know, I, I think it's true that the technological revolution that we've undergone in the last thirty years has meant that things like new algorithms, new molecules, have been more attractive places to put money than natural resources. I think that the balance will shift a little bit, but I certainly wouldn't be one of those, uh, although I've done it, I wouldn't be one of those who had half of one's net worth in extractive industries. I think you need to right-size your portfolio uh, relative to the risk you want to take and the timeframes involved. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I know we're going we're to be running out of time, but I did want to touch on something that I took from your podcast with Maggie Lake. Um, I listen to Maggie's stuff uh, quite frequently because I don't know what I'm doing and she does. So it's quite good for me to listen to somebody who's a professional broadcaster. And you talked about how uh, Warren Buffett had hacked um, the tax code and developed a, you know, a durable competitive advantage while sim simultaneously taking advantage of that, that tax code. Um, can you flesh this argument out for people who are listening? Because I, I thought you hit the nail on the head with this. It's not an argument. It's just an observation. I'm a student of Buffett. Uh, and I like his focus on big, simple ideas. One big, simple idea is the fact that regulators around the world want a solvent insurance business. And the upshot of that is if you're Warren Buffett and you're insuring very long-tailed risks, you can set up policy loss reserves that are based on your own calculation of your risk. And as long as you maintain that cash in a separate pile, you can invest it, but you can't dividend it or you can't salary it. Buffett calls that a float. The rest of the industry calls it a policy loss reserve. What's cool about that policy loss reserve is the money that you dedicate to that reserve every year comes off the operating income 
uh, of your other businesses. So in the case of Berkshire Hathaway, if my memory serves me well, last year they paid tax equal to about 11% of profit. So the $20 billion that they earned uh, out of the Burlington Northern Railroad, you know, $2 billion and change went to the tax man and the rest went to policy loss reserves. I haven't done the work for some years, but I used to compare the policy loss reserve with the policy loss experience at Berkshire Hathaway. And for the years I observed it, the reserves exceeded the experience about six to one with the blessing of the regulators. So while Buffett tells you that you need to pay more tax, he's very cautious. He's very competent at making sure that he doesn't. Well, that's the thing. Uh, first of all, bad things sometimes happen to good people. And apparently Warren Buffett is not a good person by that piece of logic. Because um, bad things never happen to him, apparently. But also, <laughs> also uh, taxes, I think, are always better paid by other people. I think that's the basic principle of tax, isn't it? Uh, um, so, yeah, I think the gist here um, is that it's great if you can accrue returns, not pay taxes on them in a reliable way. And the other thing that Buffett did is get a business which reliably makes a reasonable rate of return of 8 to 12% every damn year. Um, if I could, are there other businesses like that you found? What, what else is like that? Well, banking is, I think. That's one of the reasons why I'm attracted to banking. Banking is a business. It's a really, really, really good business if you don't screw it up. Uh, if you have a bank in the U.S., depositors put up the first $250,000. They're not lending it to you. They're lending it to the federal government. And whether the federal government should have uh, good credit characteristics or not, they're regarded as having good characteristics. So you have a subsidized cost of funds. <laughs> uh, that's pretty attractive. I mean, right now, if you control your non-interest expense, uh, the difference between the interest expense and even the yield on a two-year treasury, particularly if you get to leverage it 10 to 1, <laughs> uh, which you do, uh, is extraordinary. You know, the FDIC considers 7% to be a well-capitalized bank. I've never had the courage to run a bank at 7. 10 has always felt like felt better to me than 7. But the point of all this is that banking itself is a very good business. And if you see a well-run community bank, notice I said well-run, uh, those banks can earn 15 to 20 percent return on equity uh, and continue, ironically, particularly in bad markets, uh, to grow faster than their larger competitors. The idea that you can earn a reliable rate of return and reinvest that by building your equity base while at the same time increasing concomitantly uh, your deposit base uh, makes it a uniquely good business from my point of view. So how should I have gotten my uranium exposure? What vehicles would you recommend? Not Actually, let me rephrase that. You are recommending nothing, but what vehicles are you interested in? I tell people two things. Um, <clears throat> I think that the beta in uranium will be outstanding. So for people who don't want to do the work, uh, or for people who have something to invest but not much, I would simply recommend buying the equity ETF uh, operated by my former employer, Sprott, symbol URNM, while at the same time buying the physical uranium trust. I actually think the beta, the uranium beta relative to the broad market will be spectacular. And if you don't want to spend a whole bunch of time working on it, 
uh, buying two investments that cover the waterfront. One, if you think uranium is going to go up, buy uranium, not storing it in your basement, but rather through the trust. And if you think the stocks are going to go up, uh, buy a broad-based group of stocks. I think out of 75 or 76 uranium companies worldwide, there are only 13 that are, from my point of view, either investable or worthy speculations. The investable pile is Kazatomprom. You take political risk in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Many people don't want to invest in countries they can't spell. I love political risk. Political risk is my favorite risk. Me too. Uh, <laughs> That's why I lost so much money in Russia. <laughs> you know, those are the two that are investment quality, really. Uh, and then you come below, below there to the, uh, well, China General Nuclear, which is about in the same league, frankly, as Cameco and Kazatomprom but one where the finances are too opaque to allow me to take a full position in it. Uh, and then you come down the quality chain. And if you come down the quality chain, there are probably 11 or 12 that are decent speculations. Uh, if your listeners care what I have to say about their uranium stocks, I'd love them to go to rural investment media. Uh, you can list any of your natural resource stocks there, and I'll personally rank them, 1 to 10. Doesn't mean I'll be right, by the way. One's best, ten's worst, uh, and if I have an individual comment that I think is worthwhile on a company, I'll add that too. Um, that, of course, includes uranium stocks, but there's about 800 companies in our ranking database worldwide. 800 is a lot. We shouldn't get into the weeds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it'll take a while to sort through them all. Rick, thank you so much for that. I found it very useful. Um, maybe I should increase my position size in the uranium things. I've just got to shop around a little bit more. I'm pretty sure I've got something I shouldn't have, although thank you for reassuring me on Cameco. Um, we should do this again sometime. I look forward to it. Uh, you know, I, as I said, I failed retirement, so I'm, I'm always coming up with new investment ideas. Uh, mostly they're not good enough that I invest in them, but occasionally you, you can catch me on a day when I'm, you know, feeling both smart and aggressive and on a topic like uranium that I'm happy to talk about. You know, 45 years experience it usually comes with a few bangs. I'm grateful to take advantage of it without taking the blows. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. 